a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 86 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. Follow the show on Twitter by following me at Radio underscore Logan. And also, if you would take just a couple moments to rate or review the show on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. It would do the show a big favor. It really takes very little effort on your side, but it helps the algorithms find the show, helps the show grow, and frankly just helps me feel good knowing that somebody's paying attention and listening to the show instead of just talking to myself. So... If you like the show, retweets and shares are greatly appreciated. So are reviews. And if you're willing to do so, thank you very much. Last week was a pretty slow week. Just two games, which was good because the week before I was really, really sick. My voice was just about gone and I had to go through and broadcast with no voice a couple different times. It was not a real pleasant process nor was it probably a very good-sounding broadcast. But I had most of last week to kind of heal and recover, fortunately. I did end up having two games on Thursday and Friday, uh, high school playoff games. But again, I had enough time that I was able to go forward. Now this week, by the time this comes out, I'm going to be in the middle of nine games in six days. So it's going to be another fast and furious week, probably the last one. But the difference for this one is that a lot of them are very big games. It's going to be a high school playoff game on Monday, two girls' state tournament games on Wednesday, and then I'm doing the National NJCAA Division III National Tournament, and that's going to be six or seven games in a three-day period. And all all of them teams that I'm unfamiliar with, but I've been spending... Uh, the early part of this week, just diving into just about every team involved in the tournament. At the time of this recording, I've talked to six of the eight coaches. Hopefully the other two will get back to me at some point. But yeah, it's going to be a challenging week. I'm excited to take it on and we'll see how it goes. The really cool part for me about covering that national tournament is I don't have any basketball TV tape to send as a demo, and this is going to be a multi-camera broadcast with replays and an analyst, so uh, I'm finally going to be able to get the opportunity to get some basketball TV tape for a demo and hopefully continue to build that side of my skills as a broadcaster and uh, availability to people making hiring decisions by continuing to grow in that area. Anyway, in this episode, I'm really happy to be able to chat with Charlie Steiner. He is the voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He was a longtime Sports Center anchor. That's probably what most of us know him for best. Also, was the broadcaster for the Yankees and has kind of just been everywhere in his 
self-described Forrest Gumpian life uh, up to this point. So without further ado, thanks for joining the show, Charlie Steiner. Thank you for having me. We'll just start where I like to start with almost everybody who comes on the podcast as an icebreaker. At what point in your life did you make the decision that you were all in on sports broadcasting? First time I listened to Vin Scully do a Brooklyn Dodger game when I was about six or seven years old. I'm old enough that uh, I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan, although I wasn't quite sure what the Brooklyn Dodgers were. And I played a little stickball out on the street, grew up on Long Island. And one day there was, uh, in my mom's very small kitchen, a very large Zenith radio. And I started to listen to a Dodger game. And I heard the crack of the bat and fans cheering and could hear off in the distance the umpire bellowing strike one or a vendor trying to sell peanuts, popcorn, and Cracker Jack. And then there was this one voice that kind of enveloped it all. Uh, and it turned out to be Vin Scully. And I sat there with my mouth wide open and my ear as close to the speaker as possible. And I was hypnotized and mesmerized. Um, and I, I was just blown away by it. And I would come back the next day and the day after and the day after to listen. And one day my mom said, oh, by the way, that's his job. Really? Um, so that's when, you know, the seeds were uh, planted very early. Uh, so, again, I, I, I go back 63 years, I guess. From the first time I heard a Brooklyn Dodger game voiced by Vin, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. So what was young Charlie Steiner's reaction when Vin Scully and the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles? Well, that happened after the 57 season. I was eight, and my childhood dreams were smashed. What's a boy to do? Um... But the bug was in me, and, and if you talk to friends of mine, you know, growing up, um, you know, I'd be out there playing ball on the side street or in the schoolyard, and while I was playing, I was announcing. Um, I don't know if it drove them crazy or made me crazier. Uh, whatever it was, again, I was I was all in, uh, and, and really from the time of eight, nine, ten years of age. I was attracted to radio and television, not just baseball. Love Top 40 radio and the disc jockeys and how they made it work, how they were able to communicate and listen to after the Dodgers left um, Mel Allen and Red Barber doing Yankee games on radio and television. And then... It just it, it built from there. So I was I was always a fan and a student of the game of broadcasting as much as baseball. Um, so I was waylaid and deterred. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I knew what I wanted to be. Okay, it wasn't going to be the Brooklyn Dodger announcer. Maybe it would just be the Dodger announcer. And lo and behold, it worked out that way. 
this is going to be a little bit out of order, but when you eventually got the Dodger position and you essentially took over for Vin Scully after the three innings of TV simulcast, what was your first reaction when you found out that you were going to be opening for your childhood idol? Well, the story goes back a whole lot further than that. You know, I had been at ESPN for 14 years. And again, I always wanted to be the Dodger announcer. Uh, I did Sports Center and boxing in college football, ultimately baseball, the Sunday night games on ESPN. And then after the completion of the 2001 season, I, uh, after 14 years there, I had received competing offers from the Giants and the Yankees. And my dad was in ill health growing up in New York. I thought, well, this would be really neat if I could go back, I'll do the Yankees, and my father could listen to me as he was fading away. It worked out fine. Now, he passes away in 2004 um, in the house in which I grew up listening to the Dodgers. My mom was still alive. Um, And at the end of the 2004 season, there was much conjecture as to whether or not I was going to return to the Yankee booth or do something else. Um, My dad passed away, I guess it was in March. And now fast forward to uh, September, October. 2004, and my deal was up with the Yankees, and there was a lot of stuff being written. Uh, Was I coming back, and if so, under what circumstances, and if not, where would I be going? Again, at this point, my mom was 88, 89, and the world was going by pretty quick. And whenever she saw stuff in the newspaper, it would freak her out. And so I said to her, when we have a deal with somebody, I will let you know. I was living in Manhattan. She was still in the house in which I grew up. And I will come out and I'll tell you the whole story. Meantime, her next door neighbor kept bringing in these newspaper updates on where I may be going or not. Thoroughly confused. Now, finally, the Dodgers made contact with me um, in August, I guess, of 2004. Would I be interested? They're going to make a replacement with uh, Ross Porter. Would I be interested in coming out to be the Dodger announcer? Well, from the time I was seven years old, uh, of course the answer was yes. Uh, So we make a deal. And I go out to visit my mom. This is like maybe a week before Thanksgiving. I said, Mom, I got the deal. I'll come out and tell you all about it when I get home. Okay. And now I have to break it to her that I am going to be leaving New York, move 3,000 miles away to pursue and accomplish my dream. Okay. In the hour's drive from Manhattan to Long Island, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to break it to her. Again, my father just passed away six months ago. 
So I walk into the house, and she's all excited. And I sat her down. I said, Mom, do you remember the team I grew up rooting for? And she said, yes, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Good. Do you remember the stadium that Pop took me to to watch the Dodger games? Oh, yes, Ebbets Field. Do you remember the name of the announcer I wanted to be like as a child? She couldn't remember. And then I said, Vin Scully. And she said with perfect comedic timing, oh, good. When do we move to Los Angeles? Well, went to Los Angeles. My mom came with her caregiver and do assisted living. Now, as I am explaining all of this to her, my cell phone rings. And it's a 323 area code. And I pick it up, and on the other end of the phone is Vin, who says, Charlie, I just want to welcome you to the Dodger family. I said to my mom, I'll be right back. I have to take this call. And I went outside, again, a little suburban house with a postage stamp backyard, and I'm pacing back and forth, and Vin is welcoming me. And... In that moment, in the house in which I grew up, listening to Vin, telling my mom I'm going to the Dodgers, Vin Scully is calling me and welcoming me to the Dodgers. Everybody should have a a once-in-a-lifetime moment. That, that I guess, was probably mine. Um, And so by the time I, you know, shared the booth with him for the first time, really, in exhibition games of 2005 and me introducing him to the audience, that was small potatoes as compared with the phone call I received from Vin in uh, November of 2004. Did he give you any particular advice uh, before you started? Obviously, you were an industry veteran by that point, but, I mean, it's Vin Scully. What did he, um, what suggestions did he make to you? You know, Vin is, is very good about that. He doesn't do that sort of thing. I mean, if you ask something, he'll, he'll give you an answer. Vin, you know, leaves everybody alone. And uh, so there, there really was never any, any of that. I'd known Vin a little bit over the years, uh, you know, having done the games on ESPN. And every once in a while, we'd be doing a Dodger game. And uh, so, no, there there was never any, hey, you should do this as opposed to that. I just followed Vin and, and, and listened to Vin, you know, from, from a distance. There was much to learn about how, not so much how he does it on the air, because nobody does it quite like him and nobody ever will, um, but how he conducted himself what he was like in the booth while he was on the air, watching his hands, watching how he scored, how he trained his eye on this and moving his eye to that. Uh, And then off the air, how he conducted himself as, you know, the quintessential pro. Um, So it wasn't as much, you know, volunteering suggestions, and he is loath to do that. 
Um, it was more just watching and listening, and I, I freely say that I was able to carry the water of and play pepper with the Babe Ruth of our business. One of the interesting things about hosting this podcast is you find out all the different, completely unreplicable ways that people get to where they get. And one of the things I find interesting about your career is that kind of when everybody has zigged one way, you zagged the other. And one of those that stands out for me being the East Coast guy, most of those people are going to Ithaca or Syracuse. You went to Bradley in Illinois, which certainly has a great broadcast pedigree, but it's a long way both culturally and distance-wise from New York. I'm just curious, start off what made that decision and how crucial was it in your development and your eventual landing spot? It turned out to be beyond ideal, little did I know at the time. I had no idea when I went to Bradley my freshman year, 1967, that all of these great and wonderful sportscasters had gone there. Uh, and Chick Hearn, um, longtime great voice of the Lakers, went there. I didn't know that at the time. I, I had heard of Chick Hearn. He was the guy with the weird first name who went from the uh, Minneapolis Lakers to the Los Angeles Lakers. Did not know at the time. Ralph Lawler, who's been so great for the Clippers for such a long time, went there. I did know that Jack Brickhouse went there, and he's, he's a Hall of Famer as well. Uh, Bob Starr, Mark Holtz, uh, Bill King, all of these guys coincidentally went there, unbeknownst to me. My, I had two priorities in 1967, and that was to avoid the Vietnam War at all costs, so there, there was no other option for me. Two, Bradley at that time was a national basketball powerhouse. They had Chet the Jet Walker, and, and, and they received an inordinate amount of attention in the New York newspapers. And so my thought was, uh, maybe I can go out there, call a few basketball games in hopes of pursuing this wild and crazy dream of becoming the Dodger announcer someday. Uh, that's what happened. That's how it happened. Um, you know, by the end of my freshman year, I was calling all of the basketball games on the college station, and they also had uh, a fairly decent baseball team that I did a few of the games on the college station. And and that's where it began. Only years later uh, did I come to learn that all these great sportscasters and writers um, had gone to Bradley. Um, and as a result, over the years, you know, when I first went there, you had Radio one, radio television 101 and radio television 201, and that was it. And a little itty-bitty uh, college radio station about the size of a phone booth. Um, again, I was lucky to be at that place then, lucky to have had you know, a reasonably decent career, and then years later they come and, and, and name a, the sports communication school after me. Uh, that wasn't the plan. When I went there, I was hoping someday just to make a living in broadcasting. Little did I know I'd end up where I did. And as far as ending up where you did, a lot of other stops along the way. Uh, Davenport, Iowa, uh, Connecticut, back to Cleveland before getting back to New York. Give us the Cliff Notes version 
of how you got from Bradley back to New York. So I graduate in 71 and a half. Um, and then I stay in Peoria for a couple of months. And now I'm, that's my job, making about two bucks an hour, um, reading news, covering city council meetings. Um, you know, again, there was no ESPN. There was no cable television. You just had to get on the air as best as you could. Uh, within a couple of months, the only time I actually applied for a job was to this station in Davenport, Iowa, which was about 100 miles from Peoria, thereabouts. And I got the job. And it, it became apparent to me early, uh, Davenport wasn't meant for me and I wasn't meant for Davenport. So it was, it was time to move. But in Davenport, in the six or seven months that I worked there, I had a, a five-minute sports show at 525 in the afternoon. And I spent more time doing that than my newscasting and occasional Sunday disc jockey. Again, a surreptitious, uh, serendipitous is the word. Um, guy that I, at the time, was rooming with was sending out air checks to various radio stations around the country, hoping to leave Davenport uh, as quickly as possible. He doesn't get anything. He, he calls us one station in, in New Haven. Did you get my tape? Yes. Yeah, we did. Not looking for it. But who is the newscaster you had on the air? He said, he's my roommate. He's here. And on the call he made to the station in New Haven and got rejected, I was hired. Um, I get to New Haven and within uh, a month or two, again, I'm at that point 21, uh, and these are the days where there were large news departments. Um, I'm now suddenly uh, named news director of a news department of 10 people, and I was the youngest and I was the newest. That was a little intimidating, but somehow worked clear. Stayed there for a year and a half. Stationed in Hartford calls, would you like to come up here? And that was the nation, or the, not the nation, but the state's capital went up there. About a year into my tenure there, the station decides it's going to change format to all news. Now, suddenly at the age of 24, 25, I'm running an all news station. I'm there for a time. Cleveland comes along and said, would you like to come out and uh, uh, run our news station? Well, okay, fine. There in, in Cleveland, they were getting rid of a, a, their sportscaster of a thousand years. And uh, we needed a sportscaster, so I decided to hire me. Uh, so I was doing sports and running uh, the news department. And that was where people were first beginning to take notice of me. Um, and then after that, uh, I had an offer to go to New York. Uh, worked at a top 40 station there, 99X, primarily uh, doing the news with a disc jockey by the name of Jay Thomas, who later left the station to work for Mork and Mindy, go on to Cheers, and sadly passed away a couple of years ago. Um, the, the AM station was WOR. It was the big number one station in New York, and there they hired me to be uh, the 
their morning sports guy on the number one station, and RKO, which at the time uh, owned all of that, uh, started a radio network. Suddenly, I became the sports director of this radio network, and I hired uh, a fellow named Keith Olbermann when he was 21, uh, John Madden shortly after he uh, retired as the coach of the Raiders, just beginning his television career, Tony Bruno, who's a, a great sports talk show host. That was the early 80s. I'm in New York. And then by 83, uh, the USFL comes into being. Uh, WOR, the station that I worked on, got the rights. I became the announcer for the Generals. In 84, a certain boy builder by the name of Donald Trump took over and then would take the league down a couple of years later. So at that point, the New York Jets come along and ask, would I like to be their play-by-play voice? I said, well, fine. And that was that. And with the Jets for two years, station WABC loses the contract. Uh, I'm out of work. I still have nine months left on my deal. It's like a paid vacation. And then out of the blue in 88, not having done really a whole lot of television at all um, after the hubbub that I was uh, gone from WABC, uh, ESPN was beginning to uh, try to refocus its sports center show. And would I come up and do an audition? I told them I had no experience in this at all. They said it doesn't matter, um, and apparently it didn't. So I get hired, and, and, and in short order, me, Olverman, Dan Patrick, uh, Gary Miller, Robin Roberts, Mike Tarico, and in the space of about a year and a half, uh, suddenly SportsCenter had taken off, and I was there for the ride. Um, so uh, if that's a Cliff's Notes version, uh, be happy you're not going to get all the details because it's been <laughs> it's been wild, it's been crazy, um, it, it, you know it's been a, been a great joy obviously. And then after 14 years with uh, ESPN and doing the, then they get Sunday Night Baseball. I get to do that. Let's backtrack was, uh, a little bit. I want to go back to uh, when you were hired because your roommate was looking for a job and you got one and he didn't. Did that friendship continue? Not long. Uh, Uh, Just that's an odd thing. It wasn't my fault. You know, again, we we were roommates because we were two poor guys making $180 a week in Davenport, Iowa. And it was hardly a spacious home. Um, And we were just, you know, again, we were just, Two young guys. Let's see. That would have been seventy. So I was twenty-two years old, I guess. Um, and then I got the, I got the next gig, and you know Davenport, thankfully, was the only job essentially I have ever actually applied for. And tell us about uh, Larry the liquor store guy. Uh, Larry the liquor guy. Uh, now. Larry the liquor guy was uh, sold liquor in Norwalk, Connecticut. And this was at a time in 1988 when the Jets had lost the contract 
And WABC would then let me go, despite the fact I had the nine months left on my contract. So it, it caused a bit of a, a ruckus in the papers, because I'd been doing morning radio in New York for 10 years. I'd done the generals. I'd done the jets. And on this particular Friday in May of 88, Steve Bornstein, who was then uh, the president of ESPN, uh, walked into this liquor store in Norwalk, where Larry the liquor guy knows what Bornstein does and says, I don't understand this business you are in. And Bornstein says, why? Well, my favorite sportscaster mentions my name, has just been fired, and, and he goes on and on and on and on, says nice things. Bornstein didn't know me from Adam. He was a TV guy in Connecticut trying to get this cable sports station going, and I was a radio guy in New York. He had recently hired a fellow named John Walsh, who was the guy who was the architect in the rebuilding of Sports Center and turned it into what it was. And John had a print background. So the following Monday, he goes into Walsh's office and tells about this chance meeting with Larry the liquor guy, asks John, uh, do you know this guy Steiner? Walsh and I had known each other from New York, and he was uh, editor, uh, publisher of Inside Sports magazine that has long since come and gone. He said, well, yeah, I do. Tells of the meeting, said, why don't we have him come up and do an audition? And three weeks go by because I had I had left my apartment in the city knowing that you know the guillotine was awaiting. They tracked me down and would I be interested in doing an audition? And I said, I have no uh, experience whatsoever until it doesn't matter. Come up. And I went up there with that with talk about no expectations. I went, I did it, had no idea what the hell I was doing, and they always, they liked my writing, I always could write a little bit, could communicate a bit, but, you know, looking into a camera and without looking really stupid uh, was, was really difficult. Yet, uh, time, a few weeks go by, I don't hear anything back, and then finally they call me back and say, you know, we've seen dozens, if not hundreds, of audition tapes, we would like to hire you. I was dumbfounded. Um, and they did. And for, you know, the next 14 years, I worked in a place that certainly did more to define my career than any other place. So it, it was Larry the liquor guy who had uh, <laughs> sold his his, his hooch to a fellow named Steve Bornstein, with whom, coincidentally, I'm having lunch tomorrow. <laughs> Did you ever go and uh, buy a bottle of wine or a bottle of liquor from Larry and tell him thank you? No, no, no. But uh, his story has been told a fair amount. Uh, you know, wherever he is, you know, above ground, below ground, or high in the sky... Thank you, Larry. <laughs> I want to get to your ESPN stuff in a minute, but I think I'd be remiss to not go back. And you mentioned working for the USFL under our, the current president of the United States, Donald Trump. And 
Whether you like him or hate him, he's certainly interesting. And I imagine that the experience of working underneath him was interesting as well. What was the most bizarre thing that happened at the USFL working under Donald Trump? Donald Trump buying the team. (laughs) Um, You know, I was there for all three seasons of the Generals. He bought the team in year two. Um, And all of the things that you see about him, the verbal tics you see now are exactly the way it was in in 84, which is now, what, 35 years ago, and I'd known him a couple of years earlier. Um, he was always in it for him and nobody else. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't give a whit about the league, cared very little about his team. It was all about expanding his brand. Um, it would be, you know, disingenuous of me to say, Hey, he was a great owner. No, he was just an early version of Donald Trump. I read that he would show up for your post-game show and make you interview him. What were uh, some of the things he would ask you about or you would talk about on those post-game interviews? He would come in and then, you know, I didn't work for him. I worked for the radio station. And so it was one of those where I could have said, get the hell out. And more times than not, I, I wished I had. It was just some dopey post-game reaction. And, you know, to this day, I'm not sure if he knows if you sew up or blow up a baseball or a football. Um, you know, again, this was all amusement for him. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted he wanted folks to play with and you know being the announcer for his team was I was one of those folks that he enjoyed playing with and you know it was like okay you know at that point I just saw him as an occupational hazard nothing more nothing less I didn't know that he would be a a real hazard 35 years later one more thing on that little phase of your career and we'll move on but I read a story about him trying to take credit for your success at a dinner. And I'll just oh, shut up from there. You know, a, there was a 30 for 30. Uh, the third one, my friend Mike Tolan produced it. And it was all about the USFL. And it was called Small Potatoes. And they asked me about Trump. And... I said, you know, Donald was a reasonably successful real estate guy in New York, but he does—he didn't get a whole lot of attention building buildings. But by buying a football team, he instantly knew that he would be able to get the back page of the Post and the Daily News. He already had a fair amount of time on page six, the gossip page. And so you you add that, and so there would be days where he would make the front page. This was, he graduated from being a Donald to the Donald. Well, they read back 
the quote to him during this documentary. And Trump said that I was nobody, couldn't find a job, and so he put me on the USFL. Well, I was sports director of a network. I was on the number one radio station in mornings in New York. Um, I was already there before he arrived. But again, let's not let facts get in the way. And so he said, I made his career, which I found curious, but okay. Um, and he also talked about if, if he's not loyal to me, went into this whole loyalty rap. This is 20 years ago. Uh, get back to me and I'll attack him. Well, he hasn't yet. So now, fast forward, oh, five years ago or so, I walk into a restaurant in L.A., and there he is, and he's having dinner with two people that I knew, and he had his big bodyguard standing by. And I walk in, stands up, we shake hands, he put, puts his arm around my shoulder and tells those at dinner, you know, I made his career. And I looked up at him and said, you didn't have a goddamn thing to do with my career. And then he patted me on the back and said, and you never thank me. And then I mentioned a couple of more uh, colorful uh, It's a podcast. You can say whatever you want. To express my displeasure. And that was the last time we saw one of them. Um, yeah, it, it, Donald, we just happened to cross paths, and um, good luck to him. All right, so you mentioned that it was difficult to make the transition going from radio and being a writer to being comfortable in front of a camera. How were you able to do that? What was the biggest challenge, and what um, steps did you take to overcome that? Oh, I guess reps more than anything else. You know, I, I really believe that it is more difficult for a television guy to go to radio than a radio guy going to television or woman. Um, because it's all about the art of communication, writing and conversing with an audience. So the writing part, I pretty well had down. Uh, so what I did and when I first started, the first three months or whatever, I was doing the live 2.30 a.m. sports center where nobody watched except a half a dozen people on the West Coast, which is, was just as well. And I had uh, a producer who kind of pointed out stuff to people. But more than anything else, I, back in the days when there were video cassettes, I would take a cassette home of the show that I had just done and got home at four in the morning and probably watched it kind of like a quarterback watching a play on an all 22. Um, what I did, how I looked, moving papers, not those little things were, were pretty much self-taught. And then after a while reps, you just get more comfortable and, and slowly but surely, it, it it seems to work. And they, I started on September 1st of 88. And by Christmas time, I didn't actually get on the air doing Sports Center until maybe a month later. Because, again, I was still learning how to do it. They take me out to lunch. Uh, my two bosses say, how's it working? I said, well, I'm, 
this, I, as a kid, I never wanted to work 9 to 5, and Lord knows I never wanted to work 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. I'm not really, this is not great. But they said, don't worry, in two months, this is December, in February, we'll put you on the 7 o'clock Sports Center, which is primarily a writer's show, not a lot of highlights yet. And I stayed on that show for 12 years, so they kept their end of the bargain, and it turned out uh, turned out to be a, a wonderful experience. So the answer is reps. I just did it and watched it, rewatched it, and then slowly but surely, I forgot that there was a, a little red light above the camera. And we mentioned earlier that kind of when everybody else would zig one direction, you would zag the other, and pretty much everybody else on Sports Center at that time was kind of, uh, you know, clean cut, um, straightforward type of people. And you were more of a, if you had the big beard, were kind of counterculture. How important was that aspect of your personality in you succeeding the way you did? Yeah, I, I, I never gave it much thought then and really don't give it much thought now. When I, shortly after I was hired, they asked me to meet with uh, uh, their big shot consultant. I spent a day getting a, a crash course on television with him at his home. And he asked me, oh, by the way, would you consider shaving your beard? I said, ah, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other. Okay. So now I get hired and a couple of months into me being on the air, the managing editor comes over to my desk and said, we just had a meeting, really. You can keep your beard. I had no idea it was up for discussion. <laughs> um, and so I, it, it was nothing by design. I just happened to have a beard when they hired me. And one of my good close friends in, in this business, Wolf Blitzer, Wolf and I were the only two guys with beards on television in the early 90s. Um, and so we always had that, had that connection. So it was not anything by design. It just, I had a beard on my face and they said it was okay. Tell us the story about the time you almost, or did kind of get in a fight with a British tabloid writer in Wimbledon. 1981, my first overseas assignment, um, John McEnroe, uh, was the big star that would eventually be Borg and McEnroe in the finals. McEnroe in the summer of 81 was going out with a American female tennis player, Stacy Margolin, and there was question as to whether or not they were breaking up, and that was big news in the British tabloids. And there was one particular reporter who was badgering McEnroe every day, is it true you and Ms. Margolin are Splitsville? And McEnroe would say, I'm not going to talk about my private life, uh, but anything you want to talk about in terms of the match of the day, I'm here all day. And after each match, the same guy would raise the question, is it true, Mr. McEnroe, you and Ms. Margolin are Splitsville? Finally, after he wins the semifinal, the guy asks again, and McEnroe explodes in this little press room that comfortably sat 25, maybe, with tension building after each of these McEnroe matches. It got more and more crowded. 
McEnroe storms out, expletives are flying. And I go over to this guy, along with a, a young reporter from Life magazine, which gives you some idea how long ago that was. We said, come on, man, you are ruining it for everybody else. We need our quotes. We need our sound bites. And then this other British reporter comes over from my side, puts his finger in my face and says, none of your damn business. And I said, get your finger out of my face. None of your damn business. And then he jumps up on a chair and wrestles me to the ground. I'm going, oh, shit, I'm in a, I haven't been in a fight since junior high school in a touch football game. Um, and it was, you know, it was filmed. There it was. It was front page news. And uh, that was that was my first overseas assignment. Was it your last overseas assignment? Did they give you another one after that? I, mean, I, I was back at Wimbledon next year. No, it was just like, this is no way to start. But it was, uh, you know, and every year as the Wimbledon finals roll around, and I guess in three years, it'll be the 40th anniversary. They will break it out in a big way. I, I probably do one interview a year from somebody somewhere about the free-for-all. And, and, and Billie Jean King, who is now one of the Dodger owners, was there. And I remember her telling me the next day that, you know, I've been playing here since I was 16, whatever. So that was the neatest thing that ever happened. And so now... <laughs> Here we are, Billy Jean and I are reunited all these years later. If that happened in 2019 instead of 1981 with all the social media and instant reactions and overreactions for that matter, how do you think that the how what do you think would have been different about the way that the reaction came about and the way it was handled by ESPN? I wasn't even with any ESPN yet. I haven't got the ESPN <laughs> for another eight years. This is RKO radio. Um, and again, the social media changes everything. I can't even begin to address that. Um, you know, it happened, you know, and the way the story evolved, it, it got out on the wire services, Associated Press, UPI. Uh, then uh, there was some film of it. Um and then within a few hours, there was this story of this this brawl at Wimbledon at the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, um, as opposed to somebody filming it on phone. It, you know, it's there's no comparison. It was just that was then, and this is now. So that this is Sports Center commercials. Maybe the thing that for. That me, I'm 33, so I was in my probably high school, early college time when you were at ESPN, and the Y2K commercial is the one that I'm sure uh, gets brought up to you almost every day. Does it ever get old talking about it? No. You know, it's done. And, and, and the thing is, it is now going on 20 years old. Um, you know, I... I the the sports center commercials were really great commercials above and beyond the fact that it was all about sports center all that stuff i mean it, it, they are a model of what a lot of these things are to this day um and and the irony is or was that up until that commercial campaign they really tried to do uh, suppress 
personality. Uh, they didn't want us to be, quote unquote, as big as or bigger than the network. Um, and yet these commercials took off. And for reasons best known by the producers of Wyden and Kennedy, the advertising agency that put them together, they gave me a lot of good punchlines. And, um, and so, yeah, uh, you, you had me at hello, uh, Bobby the pool boy, uh, <laughs> Vander Holyfield, come get your whooping, and of course, follow me to freedom. Um, you know, I had a pretty good run as a sports center anchor and a play-by-play guy. But I guess the success and enjoyment uh, given by those commercials may be uh, whatever passes for a lasting legacy for me there. And I got no kicks. I can't control that part. Did you realize when you were making it, like how funny it was? Or how did that process work? I'll tell you about that day. You know, again... Now these sports center commercials are, are on the air. They, you know, they they've been on the air for a year or two, um, and the the advertising agency and the camera people they would descend upon Bristol uh, for about a week, and they'd shoot out of sequence all of these different commercials that would end up on the air. On the day that we shot just that last thing, you know, follow me to freedom. I was going to tape that segment or film it about four in the afternoon. Remember, I was doing a seven o'clock show. About noon that day, I am at the office and the makeup people come over and they put Indian war paint on my face. I think nothing of it. Now, I'm writing for that evening's show with Indian war paint on my face. People walk by, hey, how you doing? Nobody looked twice. Fine. So now, fast forward a few hours, I go into the men's room, I look in the mirror, and I say, Jesus, I've had Indian war paint on my face all day. So I get out to the, the portion of the uh, upstairs newsroom, where they're going to film my segment, Follow Me to Freedom. The uh, producer says, take off your tie and put it around your head. Fine. Did. Um, And then we did like three or four or five different lines above and beyond Follow Me to Freedom. I'll lead you to the underground. Follow me, my people, all of us. Anyway, Follow Me to Freedom was the one they settled on. You know, weeks, months later, I had no idea. Um, And that, you know, that, as it turns out, 20 years later, the spot still has legs. And uh, I guess it's still pretty funny. I have a couple listener-submitted questions. And the one uh, that I want to make sure we get in here is... Keith Crane from Cherokee, Iowa, wanted you to recap the time where you could not stop yourself from laughing when you were talking about Carrie Wood's relief appearance. And I want to just have you expand on that in general, because there were several times where you you wrote something that was so funny that you couldn't help not laughing at your own 
at your own lines. Uh, I, I tell you what, you know, again, when I first started, having had no television experience, and, you know, I was really uh, consumed by the fact that there was a camera on me at all times. So when I first lost, lost it, it was actually Carl Lewis singing the national anthem very badly. And I had seen it about 20 or 25 times during the day, and I thought, okay, by the time we get on the air, I'll be cool. Well, I wasn't. I lost it. Thankfully, I had the wherewithal to say that that was apparently written by Francis Scott off-key. So I go back to the newsroom thinking, I'm going to be fired for having absolutely lost it. In the newsroom, I walk in, and everybody is laughing their asses off. Well, okay, maybe I can survive this monstrosity. And that moment actually loosened me up as a television broadcaster, because if that's the worst that can happen, I'm okay. Fast forward to other things that I found humorous, and I guess I'm an easy laugh. Uh, then came the Carrie Woods story about how he was busted in spring training for public urination. And as I am delivering this story, and sometimes I find my writing probably more funny than others do. Um, this is, you know, making me making me laugh. And uh, a policeman comes over, tries to make an arrest, and I talked about the arresting officer and the perpetrator, and the perpetrator said to the arresting officer, not now, I'm not finished yet. Now, the, the camera guys, the, the prompter guy, and I think Bob Lee was with me that night, they're all totally losing it. And I finished it off by saying that was Carrie Wood's last known uh, relief appearance. Um, and consequently, because of Carl Lewis, I probably lost my lunch 12, 13, 14 times over the years, and people just remember me as an easy laugh did definitely kind of become your M.O., which is, as you mentioned, the kind of showing the personality. It really helped to do that, I think. You know, one of the things about SportsCenter, you know, we were there were guys who preceded us, but the group that we had, you know, within a year or two of my arrival, Keith and Dan and Rob and Bob Lee had already been there, Tariko had arrived, and others. We, were, we just went out and did stuff. Um, th there were no constraints. So stuff that worked, we did again. Stuff that didn't work, we didn't. Um, so I, I never really thought about that that much because, again, whatever came across on television was essentially the guy that I was on radio, but on radio I wasn't wearing a tie. So I want to move on from ESPN and go to your time with the New York Yankees. You were there for three years, and you you, would, you broadcast some of the most uh, some of the most famous, both positive and negative, if you're a Yankees fan, moments in their history. Just walk us through memory lane a little bit on what it was like working with Mister Sterling in the Yankees booth. You know, John. Uh John is a great 70s 
seminal baseball broadcaster who has his own style, and we are friends to this day. I, when I arrived, it was like, you know, again, he had had Michael Kay with him, and Michael learned how to, to broadcast with John. I came in from ESPN, and it was just one of those, there was a chemical imbalance, not out of malice. It, you know, sometimes it works and it doesn't. Um, but we were two professionals. We showed up. We did the best we could. And uh, a lot of the stuff that was written about us at the time was, was really newspaper exaggeration. Were we the best of friends? No. Were we arch enemies? Not at all. We were just two guys. We were two musicians who showed up on stage every night to play and went our separate ways. To this day, here it is 15 years later, John and I talk a few times a year on the phone in nice, long, substantial conversations. Um, so I came in, and I had never been the other guy, and John really hadn't had another guy, and it was just one of those. But at the end of the day, you know, I was very fortunate to work for a great franchise with a great broadcaster and uh, being around for some great moments. So making the decision to leave the Yankees for the Dodgers, we went into that earlier, but... Was it a difficult decision, or was it, you know, this is the Dodgers, no. this is what I dreamed about since I was seven, this is what I'm going Back to Back to what we were talking about in the beginning. When I was a kid, I wanted to be the Dodger announcer. Simple as that. Um, I didn't bank on the fact that it would be the Los Angeles Dodgers. But when you are given an opportunity to achieve a, a childhood dream, um, for me... I couldn't not do it, um, and I'm clearly happy that I did, and again, along with that, I got to work alongside Vin, who you know is a friend of mine uh, as we speak, and uh, no, it was, uh, that was when, when the offer came, it, I didn't even need to process the question before I blurted out the answer. So usually on this podcast, we get a little bit more uh, into the nitty-gritty of of the broadcast itself. And you have so many stories, we haven't done much of that today, which is fine. But one of the things I wanted to bring up was when you started with the Dodgers doing innings 4 through 9 after uh, Vin Scully simulcast the first three, how does that alter your preparation for the game and how you use it knowing that you're going to be thrown into a situation that, that you don't know what it's going to be as opposed to just starting the game in, at, from the beginning? Well, it, it, it's actually more difficult. And again, uh, now that Vin has retired, I, I start the game at the beginning. Um, it, it, was, it was like being in, in a relay race and suddenly I'm handed the baton in the second leg. So I got a lot of catching up to do. And so to start a broadcast in the fourth inning, when the first three were delivered by Vin and, and the way he goes about his business, and then for me to kind of recap what it was that I might have missed, or not might have missed, but what I had not yet talked about, that was, it's more difficult I suspect than, than some folks might 
think. Um, and so doing one through nine, much easier. Um, and it's also difficult to follow Babe Ruth every night. So that was, that was part of it. But the X's and O's, once a game begins, it's just a matter of, you know, getting the baton in the second leg and start of, instead of starting out of the uh, starter's case. Did you have to, you know, take that baton and to keep that metaphor going, run in the same direction, knowing what he had already talked about and the talking points he had led into? Or did you just take it and go your own way? I, you know, you, you go your own way. Um, you know, there were points that he would make early in the game that I might want to revisit, say, in the seventh inning or eighth inning. But you, you know, in, in, in this racket, you know, John Miller and I had a wonderful discussion years ago in New York. You know, Jesus, about 20 years, I guess. And we, it was just the two of us, and we were just having some philosophical dinner over a bottle of wine. Um, and so when you go and do radio, what do you think? And John says, uh, tell them what you see. And that's it. It, it. It's as simple as that. How you tell them is the hard part. Um, and so, you know, when the baton was passed to me, here it is. It's my turn to describe the game as best as I can. I can't compare myself to Ben and anybody who tries to is a fool. Did you change your broadcast style moving from New York to L.A. to just kind of fit the the vibe and culture of the city and what they expected? No, I don't think so. Again, I am who I am. You are who you are. Um, All you can be is the best that you can be. And hopefully it works, you know, and after 50-something years, it's worked a little bit. Um, so, no, uh, this, is, this is who I am on the air on a, on a nightly basis, 650 hours or so per summer. Um, and you do the best you can, and you hope that more people like you than don't. Every broadcaster says that, you know, the preparation – for a World Series or a big game is basically the same as any other game, but that the atmosphere and the electricity uh, around the event are different. What was it like calling the World Series for the Dodgers, a team that you grew up rooting for? Well, actually, the very first World Series game I announced was in 2000. Uh, Miller was, I was doing ESPN radio, and John, of course, is doing the Sunday night games on television, and he would do the World Series, and then he contracted laryngitis. So I was thrust into the mix, and my first World Series game was the Subway Series, the Yankees and the Mets, and I'm looking down, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Um, That was the first time where it was a little overwhelming. Um, And by the time did the first World Series game with the Dodgers two years ago, I had done so many games that it was just, I can't say it was just another game, but it was another game that happened to be the World Series. And that was how I approached it. You know, there's a, a, a greater sense of 
gravitas to a World Series game as opposed to a game with the Pirates in August, um, with all due respect to the Pirates. Um, so it was just, you know, it was neat. It was a great moment. And again, you, then you have those pennant clinching games or a game where a no-hitter is on the line. When, when, when you've got the adrenaline going and the fans going and you know that folks at the other end of the radio speaker are listening to every word, you know, you ride that wave as best you can. Do you say that there's a no-hitter going when there's a no-hitter going? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are sheep herders on Botswana who've got a cell phone <laughs> that know there's a no-hitter going on. What in the heaven's name does a broadcaster have to do with whether there's going to be a no-hitter or not? I've always thought that it's about as dopey as it gets. I agree, but there's enough people that, for whatever reason, go with it. But... Uh... I said, good luck to them. I, I just, I don't understand that. I fundamentally do not understand that. If, if, if a single broadcaster had anything to do with a single moment of a single game in the history of sports, they're grossly underpaid. <laughs> this is just a complete off tangent. There's, I did some small college games where the players complained that they could hear me reading their free throw percentages while they were shooting free throws because the gym was so quiet. So maybe that's the only time I can think of where a broadcaster could affect a game. You just tell the players, get more fans in the stands, and it won't be a problem. <laughs> um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is completely unrelated to sportscasting. I read that you went to the original Woodstock in a VW bus. Yes, sir. And I just wanted to uh, tell us what it was like to be at that moment. And I read the story. I know what you're going to say, but it's I want to hear it from you. Just take us through that day in your life. Well, I was uh, it's the summer of 69. I'm 20 years old, maybe just turned 21. And I was hanging out in Greenwich Village. Um, and two of my college roommates and a couple other guys would get into this VW bus, and we go up to Woodstock. We leave Thursday night at 10 o'clock, and it was about a two-hour or so drive from uh, where I lived to the festival site. Um, and we get stuck in, you know, monumental gridlock get out of the vw bus and me and one of the guys we start parading around and meeting other folks and having a great time suddenly uh the traffic begins to clear kind of sorta and we lose our guys or other guys in the bus and i'm wearing a pair of dopey little sandals and were which were not equipped to walk where we had to walk. So we left the house at 10 and arrived near the stage because the uh, fences weren't up yet, about five o'clock in the morning. And then the weather got cold and miserable. And I was admittedly not there till the end. 
because it was cold and miserable. Um, but again, it was one of those, I happened to be there then, and uh, it was, it's one of those that feels better in memory than it did at the moment. <laughs> and you got that first call from Steve Bornstein also in Woodstock, New York, right? Yeah, I, I subsequently bought a home up there. <laughs> and uh, actually, I got the call from John Walsh, who was instructed by Stevie B. Um, to, uh, uh, to have me come over. But yeah, I was uh, at a, a weekend home where I had left my apartment in New York knowing I, I wasn't going to be needed uh, in, in the city. Um, yeah, so that Woodstock thing was kind of a big deal. Cosmic, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I laughed at your description. You described your own life as Gumpian, uh, yeah, a lot of the oh. weird events that you were able to be around. I, I you know, I, it was it was crazy. Um, and in '67, the year I graduated high school, I went off to Haight Ashbury. So it was. I, I just happened to be in places, and and people happened to run into me in those periods of time. Larry, the liquor guy, um, you know. Ross Porter uh, being replaced. There I was. I mean, so, you know, hey, I've had a good run, but I've had better luck. <laughs> you know what? That's what it takes is uh, getting the right breaks at the right time and putting yourself in position to take advantage of them, and you've been able to do that. There's two questions that I ask everybody before I send them off. And but Branch Ricky had a great line. He said, luck is a residue of design. And I've always bought into that, and uh, I guess I've had a decent design, but better luck. So there's two questions I ask everybody before I send them off. And the first one is, tell us a broadcast horror story where basically everything goes wrong during a broadcast, or in your case, during a, a Sports Center episode, where your broadcast location is terrible, or all the equipment hayfires, or something something weird happens that you can laugh about now that was somewhat mortifying at the moment that we haven't talked about already. We'll put that caveat on it. This one happened at my second job in Davenport, Iowa. Um, KSTT was the station. This was back in the days when there were turntables. And on Sundays, Sunday mornings, there would be these Blocks of programming, three, four hours of nothing but public service stuff. And you would turn on this record that would play for a half hour of some pre-recorded show. So I'm, you know, this is my first real full-time job. And on this particular Sunday morning, uh, I put on, it was some report from NASA. Okay. I go out out back, and, and literally the radio station is on the banks of the Mississippi River. And I open the door and I go out, and back in the day when you had a cigarette. So I went out, caught a smoke, door closes, and I locked myself out. <laughs> I, there's nobody else in the radio station. 
Now, what am I going to do? I, like anybody else at the ripe old age of 21 and seeing his life flash before his eyes, I panicked. Um, there were no cell phones. You know, there may have been a pay phone a half a mile down the road. And after the half hour when the program ends and all two dozen listeners or whatever they had on a Sunday morning heard the end of this record go, did the program director or somebody from the radio station come to realize there was an issue here? And then finally they came in, unlocked the door, we took the needle off the record and moved on to the next thing. That I thought was the beginning of the end of my career less than a year into it. The other question I ask everybody is on a night off where you're not where you don't have any broadcast assignment, who are you going to listen to uh, that you enjoy both on the national scene and maybe somebody below the radar that not everybody knows? You know, I tell you, if I've got a night off, I generally kind of tune it out. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly do listen enough, but if I'm not doing a game, um, I'm not doing a game. So I, I, when you do it, and again, this year, it's the beginning of a, a, a whittled down schedule. I'll be doing less and I'm so happy about it. Uh, then I might be able to have a little more time to, to listen. Um, but it, it, it's a long year. And so if there is a day off or a night off, um, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the all-star game? No, that's why they call it the all-star break. Uh, so it's, it, it's that kind of stuff. So I don't, I don't do a lot of listening of other guys. I mean, I will dial tune past if I'm home. Hey, this guy's pretty good. This guy, whatever. Uh, but one of the things I have come to learn, this is a really hard job. Uh, it's hard to make it sound easy. And so when I listen to, you know, you know the younger fellows and I listen to contemporaries, uh, I think I can understand um, what they're going through and, and how well they are handling it. How do you handle criticism? You mentioned that uh, when you were with the Yankees, there were some not nice things written about you and John Sterling. Um, it's not hard. You can look around, uh, the internet and there's some unkind things written about you. Uh, how do you handle that? I, I try to ignore it as best as possible. Those of us who do what we do are in an indefensible position. We can't lash out. We can't tell them, well, you're wrong, or you don't know what you just wrote to be accurate. Um, you just move on. Um, it's pretty much as simple as that. I guess at the end of the day, I'm still here and thankfully will be for the most part until I no longer want to be. The Dodgers have been great. I'm, you know, I'm occupationally secure. I like to think emotionally I'm secure, financially I'm secure. So whatever they they're going to say what they're going to say. And there's nothing I can do about it except, okay, fine. What else you got? Is that why you're not on social media? Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't understand the need for social media. I have nothing to sell. 
For the most part, I don't care much what I think, let alone would want to share it with somebody else. Uh, Charles Barkley's line about not being on social media, he says, I like being drunk too much. Uh, for me, I just that, that's just a neighborhood I'd rather not go down. Um, I don't understand it. Of course, I did not grow up in it. It came along well after, um, you know, I, I started living and have been in a career. And understand also, when I first started, there were... There were no media critics, none. There was one named Jack Craig in the late 60s in the Boston Globe who had one column a week. And then it began to mushroom. So am I overly concerned about what somebody says? No. You know, would I rather have positive feedback than negative? Yes. But there's nothing I can do about either. All right, well, you have already given us uh, almost an hour and 15 minutes, so I'm going to wrap things up. But once again, we're chatting with Charlie Steiner. He is the radio voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers and longtime Sports Center anchor. And Charlie, thanks so much for coming on. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. Remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests on the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the pod. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to Say the Damn Score just a little bit more. Follow me. Follow me to freedom!